Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend. I am so excited about this week's guest. We are talking to Emerald Fennell. She is an Academy Award-winning writer, actor, and director. I loved her 2020 film, Promising Young Woman, so much that I insisted we recap it here on Nerdette. And her new movie, Saltburn, is out this week. It's about Oliver, a scholarship student at Oxford who's pulled into the orbit of his classmate, Felix, the guy who has it all. It's no big deal. I mean, I'll just get it from you later. You're my college, so... Am I? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sorry I don't know your name. I'm uh, I'm Felix. Oliver. Oliver. Yeah. Oliver. (laughs) Oliver, I love you. I love... Oliver finds himself a complete fish out of water. He is in a world of aristocratic decorum that he's just not used to. Oh, oh nice tux. Thank you. Wow, it's a rental, right? Yeah. When Felix learns that Oliver has nowhere to spend the summer, he invites him back to the family estate called Saltburn. And what starts as an idyllic, languid summer turns very sour. It's a classic trope, but it's one that Emerald completely subverts, filling it with dark twists and a lot of surprises. The kind of gothic country house thriller, which kind of necessarily has the aristocracy at its heart, seemed like a great vehicle to talk about why we want the things we want, what we do to get them, and what it does to all of us. And that is all I'm going to say for now, since we are going to do our best to avoid spoilers in this conversation. Emerald, welcome to Nerdette. Thank you very much for having me. It's very exciting. So you went to Oxford and you are capturing such a specific vibe in that section of the film, which is where it takes place as the film begins. It seems really foundational in terms of exploring the different social and economic dynamics among our main characters. What was your own experience there like? I mean, my own experience there was was is very hard to piece together due to the in, enormous amount of drinking that was part of the culture at the time. Fair enough. So the movie is set in 2006, 2007, which is, you know, was, was part of the time that I was there too. Mm. And I think, you know, I think getting into the specifics of anything is always really fun. And because of the, like, the nature of the movie being a kind of gothic movie when somebody's looking back over a time that kind of changed their life, mm-hmm. you need a period of time to have passed. And so 2006 felt incredibly fun. It felt very funny, first of all, to set a period drama in 2007 because it's like... <laughs> it's insane. It feels like it just happened, yeah. even though... Of time course, marches on. It marches right on. And and so, so much of it was like the, the pleasure of building that world was about remembering, you know, the Livestrong bracelet, the Carpe Diem tattoo, <laughs> the terrible fake tans, the terrible extensions, the like a thousand billion accessories all on one head at all times. <laughs> you know, so that was the kind of, you know, 
if you're if you're going to set something in the recent past, you've got to be so specific. Mm. And and my God, and the number of times the costume designer would come and be like, oh my God, you're going to die when you see this T-shirt. We found the lamest T-shirt you've ever seen. And I would look at it and be like, I've wore that. Like, yes, I literally have that still in my closet and may even have worn it. That might be mine. You know, it's just so devastating. Um, yeah, and so, and it just seems like the perfect place to start this kind of journey, to start that kind of friendship and the sort of fish out of water. And I think, honestly, it could have been set at Harvard. It could have been set at any of these kind of like legacy type schools where you have a combination of students who've worked incredibly hard to get there, Mm -hmm. who are kind of scholarship students, Mm -hmm. and then the students that were just born to go there. Yeah, who just stride in confidently. Stride in confidently. That's it. And do no work and get rewarded for it. So, yeah, even in that answer, I feel like you've talked about a number of tropes that come up in this story. And I, you're subverting a lot of them in a lot of really surprising ways. And again, I, I want to try really hard not to spoil this because it's such a wild journey that your audience is going to go on. Um, but I thought a lot, and I guess it kind of tracks with Promising Young Woman in some ways, too, around the idea of like a fairy tale and how quickly that can just become a nightmare. And I think... You know, I mean, you even have a uh, Midsummer Night's Dream party that really sums up a lot of that too. sort of like the idea of the glitter on top. And then it's like sinister just underneath that layer. Yeah. And and it's all about identity as well, too. You know, Midsummer Night's Dream is that thing of people playing and mm. being other people mm-hmm. in the middle of the night. And I think that's that's a huge, you know, huge part of this movie. And it's always so fun to play with genre. Like it's I think the thing to. The thing that's so exciting for me is as a filmmaker and a movie lover, we can't expect the audience to have no relationship with a genre or no relationship with an actor. They're bringing, you know, we all bring our own libraries of our past and the past of the movies and and songs and people that we feel connected to. So actually being able to use that and then, you know, it's only really when you can make something super, super familiar that you can then subvert it and, and make it uncanny. And it's, I mean, that's the real fun of this movie is the, the moments when you start to feel like something might not be quite as it seems or, you know, or you get the sense that maybe this is a horror, but you don't necessarily know who the, you know, or a vampire movie, but you don't know who the vampires mm, are. That's and a that's beautiful way of putting it. The kind of fun, that's the fun to be had. It sounds like it would be really fun. Um, You're messing with class dynamics a lot in this film, I think especially around power dynamics and how those often are, but also sometimes are not connected. And I mean, right off the bat, I think about Pamela, who is the mom's friend played by Carrie Mulligan. She's Mm. amazing at it. And she's staying with them in this literal castle. But she's also like kind of always at their beck and call because she is allowed to stay with them, which I thought was just such a fascinating example of those moments when you find yourself in spaces of privilege that you just can't possibly fathom. And then what happens as a result of that and and who you do or don't owe when they are in a position to very comfortably be able to help you. Totally. And I think that's always the fascinating thing about like making anything, you know, that it has a satirical bent. Mm is, you know, you're, I suppose I'm always looking to make the audience understand what it is about this world, what it is about these people that's so enticing. We all need to understand that we too would completely go to Saltburn <laughs> if Felix asked us. Like, there's no question. And we would lie down at the feet of Elspeth Catton, a.k.a. 
Rosamund Pike, even though she <laughs> could, amazing. she would just like, just, we would let her destroy us. Hello, Oliver, darling. Oh, what beautiful eyes. Oh, how wonderful. Yeah, I told you it wasn't a minger. Oh, but darling, you're kind about everyone. You can't be trusted. What's wonderful about the British class system is we've exported it so efficiently. You know, <laughs> it's like everyone's seen, uh, everyone's seen the movies and the TV series that this this yeah, kind of takes true. a jump from. Yeah. We all understand that the if you ask for the wrong thing at breakfast, it's death. You know, we, we know that we, we have a familiarity with that world. That's when it really works as a satire. If you yourself think, oh, no, I know I shouldn't care about how I have breakfast in the morning. I know that none of this matters. And yet I feel completely mortified. I feel this excruciating moment where I've done the wrong thing. And it's particular, I suppose, to the English aristocracy as well in that the rules are constantly changing and they're all designed to... There's a kind of weaponized charm and yes. there's a kind of um, a pretense that there are no rules, that there's nothing more gauche than being formal and that they can't bear anything, sort of, you know, can't bear to say sir or anything like that. But, of course, it's just not true. And so it's a, it's a kind of... It's a constant trap. It's a constant labyrinth they're trying to get through. I love to hear you use the word trap because I, that's something that I found myself thinking about a lot with this film, too, is the idea of these people in this incredible level of privilege and wealth, and yet they're trapped in this decorum, too. You know, I mean, there it's black tie dinner all the time. Even the idea with of, you know, like ignoring the tragedy going on outside the windows and like you keep eating your lunch and how mm. oppressive that is even for them too. It's completely oppressive, but also it's survival mechanism too. Mm. And so I think the thing is with everything is that that I try never to judge anyone too harshly, including characters who, you know, who really have many things about them that are completely reprehensible. <laughs> but I think the thing is is that I think we've all been in a situation where something's happened that's so shocking or so terrible that we just sort of carry on. Mm. You know, it's it's there's there's the kind of dark comedy of those moments, but also but only because I think we've all had to have lunch on a day that you really shouldn't ever think about eating. It's it's that kind of the mundane things of being a human and the kind of huge Greek tragedy of how life can turn out collide and that's always what's so interesting. Um, but they would never think of it as a prison, <laughs> you know. Part of it with me for the actors, for all of us and the crew, was to be was to get used to the house. You know, we lived, mm. we not we didn't live in the house, but we we shot almost everything at the house, oh. and and so part of it was everyone nobody being dazzled by it anymore. Like it's amazing how quickly you start to say things like. Um, uh, I'll meet you by the cantilever staircase and somebody says, which one? I say, oh, God, the red one. <laughs> you know, you're just, you're just kind of immune to it immediately. Well, it's like, it's like I'm sure going out with a supermodel. There comes mm. a point when you're still asking them to, like, pick up their dirty <laughs> towels. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, there does come yeah. a point where all this stuff comes becomes normal. More with Emerald Fennell in just a minute. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. 
Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. So where did you film? It's gorgeous. So part of the deal that the family, part of the agreement of us filming there was that we weren't allowed to say where it was oh. or what it was called <laughs> just because it's never been filmed in never been wow. photographed and it's very far out of London which is why it's never been you know filmed in before and and a lot of it was about you know gaining the trust of the family and the people that worked sure. there that so um yeah so okay so it's undisclosed kind of a magical secret how did you come yes. across this magical secret we did ev- everyone just did a lot of work looking for the kinds of places on the kinds of scale um, and then, you know, and then usually, I mean, there are so many, so many people working at all of these estates as well. So you usually find that there's an estate manager that you can contact. And, you know, it's just like a lot of people doing a lot of work looking for something and also seeing a few things that just don't work too, mm. you know. But and then once you found the place, it's kind of, you know, convincing everyone that you're not going to burn the place down. So, yeah, what were your criteria? I mean, did it have a maze, for example, like the garden maze? Was that? No, we built the you maze. You built that? And we had the maze designed by wow. a man called Adrian Fisher, who is the world's foremost maze designer. I love that. And he, uh, there was an interview with him in the New York Times, and me and Susie, the production designer, read it and immediately yes. texted like each that's other. Your like, guy. Because the thing is, it's anything in this movie that isn't real. Because I, I, you know, me and Linus and everyone like to do everything in camera. So anything that isn't real. We needed it to have a kind of fundamental truth to it. So mm. it does work as a maze if you pause it. And it's got kind of tricks and all of that kind of stuff. But yeah, no, the house, the criteria was it has to be the biggest house you've ever seen. So this house has 127 rooms. Oh I got blisters on my first tour. By the end, I was like, I really, I'm so sorry. You are going to have to stop this now because I can't, <laughs> I can't carry on. This is the longest walk I've ever been on. You know, and it needed to be, it needed to be, you know, beautiful and completely enticing and the kind of place you'd, you know, kill to get into. And, um, but, it, but it also had to have the opportunity to be both seductive and kind of sinister. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that makes me think of your aesthetic in general. I think seductive and sinister would be kind of a nice way to sum that up too. I mentioned earlier, like the idea of the glitter veneer with like the very dark underbelly. I think that fits pretty well with both Promising Young Woman and this one as well. I feel like there's sort of like, a neon quality to it, but then it's also can be so horrific also. How do you think of it yourself? I mean, it's sort of, yeah, it's sort of difficult always to sort of think in those terms because mm. in many ways it's a kind of, I don't know, like a kind of, na- it's, it's your sort of natural sensibility, right, right. I suppose, in the same way that like, you know, you don't think of how you, you like get dressed like. in the morning sure. or whatever. Well, or at least I don't anymore. <laughs> Good um, <for> you. <laughs> Sadly. Same. Um, but but no, I mean, I think, you know, it is always the tension between how something looks and what it is. Mm. It's always the tension between how we see ourselves and how we're actually seen and how much we're in control of that, how much we can manipulate people. And the film itself is incredibly beautiful and seductive, but there's also something, there's always something there that's not quite right. 
and we spent a lot of time, you know, making sure that in every perfect room was a old can of Red Bull or, <laughs> you know, wash and go two-in-one hair and condi- uh, like shampoo and conditioner. You know, just the stuff that's... The art department had what they called was Emerald's shit table <laughs> because every time we would, you know, we'd make this beautiful kind of mise-en-scene and I'd just come in and be like, yeah, but we need some... They say shit. <laughs> we need some shit. You know, it's like Felix needs to have like the most embarrassing tattoo. Mm. You know, it's you can't have one thing without the other. And and you know, when you're talking about anything gothic, the world of the gothic is is romance and horror together. Mm-hmm. So for me, I don't really, I can't think of a world where you're not you're not looking at that tension all the time between like disgust and arousal. You know all of that stuff. The, that that tension is where everything's interesting. It's gorgeous. I love it. It reminds me of something you've talked about before, which is the idea that beauty thrives on revulsion, mm. which well, that, is yeah. just like ah. Oh. Well, that's actually Catherine Brie, so I cannot. Mm, I wish okay. I could take that's credit. Good. For I'm that. glad we're crediting where credit is. We've too. got to credit Catherine Brie. That's in Romance, one of my favorite films. Mm. Absolute, just like work of depraved. Art, um, but yeah, yeah. Beauty thrives on revulsion, and I think that's uh, it's it's so so fascinating that that is one of the most enduring truths. I think that, mm-hmm. that there's no obsession without an element of hatred, an element of disgust. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there there's no kind of tension or movie or literature that doesn't kind of have that squeamish. Truth, those two things like rubbing up against each other. Yeah. I think I love it partly because, you know, initially you would think the opposite of beauty is ugliness, but it's not even, it's not the ugliness, it's the reception of the ugliness, you know? That's the, it's like the experience of it that makes it revolting, that Mm. that's the powerful Mm. reaction. It's, I I just think it's fascinating. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, I sort of have always felt that there's nothing really, there are no limits to our, depravity <laughs> I could see that after I mean, having watched Salt no but I mean I think the things in Saltburn are actually quite tame <laughs> you know I mean that's the thing it's just like it only hits it only hits you in that place if you kind of get it mm. you know and that's mm. the thing with any movie that I want to make is that I need I want people to feel like at all points should I be laughing should I be mm. on this person's side? Should I be turned on? Should I be should I be hoping the bad, bad, bad thing happens? That's like the joy of making a movie, especially a movie that people are going to see in theaters, is that mm. you get to, you know, you get to turn the thumbscrews on people and say, like, do you like this now? Yeah, yeah. And like, what a joy. <laughs> And what a joy when you can be complicit and say, I do like it. Mm. I really like it. I wish I, I wish people could see the way your face lit up. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's disturbing. Isn't it? <laughs> do you do you wonder how the film might be received differently in the US compared to the UK? Or have you thought about it? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think honestly, it's interesting. It 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 showed at the London Film Festival mm. recently. And um I think the the main difference was that people, I guess British people kind of understood that it was a comedy sooner. Oh, so I think I think oh. that that's always the thing, and it was the same that's with Promising Young Woman. It's just huh. that like we, we, I think we just maybe are more. I mean, and not that's not 
the case completely, but in general, we're more comfortable with with um, our humour being horrifically dark. Mm. And so I think it, it generally takes a little bit longer here for people to feel like, oh, I'm supposed, I'm allowed to laugh. But honestly, there has been no, there's, there's, it's been really, really surprising how many people feel really like shaken up and excited by the movie. And it's often people that I wasn't expecting, you know, um, and that's always thrilling. And it's thrilling. It's a, it's a great movie. Obviously, we can't because of spoilers, but it's just a really fun movie to talk about. It's the same with Promising a Woman. It You're is. kind of making people honest quite soon because mm. I always like to sort of, yeah, I always like to say like, I think this film is incredibly sexy (laughs) (laughs) and so and 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 that was part of the point of it and and illicit and so yeah so it kind of I hope gives people permission who watch it to be like okay let's get into let's get into why we're we are all the way we are so one thing I really loved about this film is that you do a lot of filming through mirrors Mm. which creates such an interesting kind of emotional distance but still has such an urgent presence at the same time Mm. no and I think you know so much of what me and Lena's talked about right at the beginning with this kind of idea of doubling Mm. of your kind of you know how how yeah how we're all kind of we're all just multi multi multifaceted in so many ways and so it absolutely is that kind of it's it's sort of alienating you're also looking at someone looking at themselves which already gives you a kind of different you know, um, a different kind of relationship to themselves and, and the camera. And then, you know, so much of these, this is an incredibly like voyeuristic movie, I think. And the thing about these houses is that they're all designed for sort of invisible, the like invisible hand of the staff to come and like make things clean mm, again. Mm-hmm. So things are made mm-hmm. dirty and then they're just secretly made clean. And in order to do that, there are lots of mirrors so that butlers, for example, can look in them unseen and see when somebody leaves a room. Huh. They have lots of doors so that people can come in and out without disturbing the, you know, the people who are in the house. But what that means is you're looking at uh, the, the very like space is designed to watch and be watched and you're aware always that that somebody may be watching you which is why doors are kind of often left partly open you know it's so perfect symbolically <laughs> it's just like you there's so much to do with that you know yeah so we've talked about promising young women a little bit you've said that they both feel personal in different ways these two movies mm. for people who haven't seen promising young women yet um as I said, I mean, it's a vengeance movie about a woman whose best friend was assaulted in college. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder, like, in both of these films, there's an exploration of the extent to which violence can solve problems. Mm. And I'm really curious how what you're thinking about with that. Well, I mean, I suppose in, in, a, in a more general sense in both films, I suppose the answer is it can't Mm. or not in a way that is necessarily satisfying Mm -hmm. or final Mm -hmm. um and I wonder if part of that is just being a woman and our relationship with violence is very different it's not it's not necessarily it's well certainly in my life it's never like an impetus it's never an instinct of mine so I'm interested in it I'm just interested in in what its limitations are in life and as a kind of storytelling method, I suppose. So what the hell are you going to make next? I mean, 
something. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know yet? I mean, even if you can't talk about it, you have a sense? I always know because I'm kind of living in a few imaginary worlds at once. Yeah. So Saltburn was one of them and now it's sort of gone away. It's really weird. It's like you live all these lives and then one by one they just, you've, you've, I don't know, I never go back there anymore. It's been so much of my life there Mm -hmm. in my mind for, you know, eight years. And now I don't go there at all anymore. Now it exists. And that's a sort of strange feeling. And so the next... Yeah, the fact that you don't go there anymore, but it exists. Yeah. Everyone else has now experienced, like, that's got to be... Yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird feeling. Disorienting. And so then, you know, then I, then there are the other worlds now that, and one of them's, you know, going to be made real too and then that will be another weird thing because it's so nice the way I work is I don't write until the very very end I just think and hmm. think and think and think for years and years and go back and live there and you know add more detail and hmm. like everyone with their daydreams hmm. um, yeah and so so just one of them eventually kind of calcifies until it's ready and then yeah and then you get everyone else to come in and they're all so incredible and then they make it even more intense and dark and interesting and funny and all the things that's beautiful i can't wait whatever it is thank you let's do it (laughs) (laughs) well thank you so much for coming on this really was such a pleasure Thank you, as always, for listening along. Coming up this Tuesday, we will have our panel discussion of Land of Milk and Honey. I can't wait for you to hear it. Also, just so you know, we are taking December off from Book Club, but we're going to announce our January selection in that Tuesday episode as well. Nerdette is produced by me and Anna Bauman at WBEZ in Chicago and is part of the NPR Network. And our executive producer is Brendan Banasak. Have a great weekend. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.